people are stupid. Live to tape. Welcome to Millennial 422. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. I'm Pamela. And joining us this week is, I'm super proud to call this person doctor, Dr. Sarah Steelman. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Hello. How are you doing? Uh, I'm not used to that yet. You're not used to it yet? No, it's very weird. I'm, I blush whenever I hear it, so it's good Aww. that we're only on Oh, audio. well, you're going to get called <laughs> doctor so many times today. Every time we ask for your opinion, we're going to be like, Dr. Steelman, what's your take? <laughs> that sounds good. I appreciate that. <laughs> so I'll, be like, I'll get used to it. Doctor, tell me about this wart on my butt. And you'll be like, Andrew, I'm not that kind of doctor. Be like, oh. <laughs> yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Sarah. I am uh, 26. I'm very firmly a millennial. Uh, I live in Las Vegas, which is very, very hot, but beautiful and lovely. Um, I'm pretty boring. I have a dog. He's adorable. His name's Rory. Um, I'm pretty active on the Facebook group, so I think most people should like recognize my name. <laughs> <laughs> so I post mostly there about like Disney Tell me about living in the desert. Do you like that? Because it gets up to like, what, 115 degrees during the summer. Is is this a lifestyle you're yeah. okay with? It is. Um, I actually have a joke. Uh, when I was living in Virginia during my PhD, because uh, no one else in my program like had ever been accepted from Nevada. And so my joke was always that like it feels fine until like 113, and then you notice it's hot. <laughs> um, but it's actually pretty true. Like today is 105 um, and it feels hot, like it definitely doesn't feel warm. It feels hot, but I love it. Like I have a lot of depression issues when I'm not in the desert. I'm just a desert rat. Mm, a desert rat. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's I know like Palm Springs, Joshua Tree, that kind of area in the dead of summer, August, September, it can get up to over hundred twenty. And I re and I always seem to go there during the worst time of year, heat-wise. And your whole day yeah. is basically just focused around how you're going to stay cool. And you can't be outside for more than, like, 10 minutes. Otherwise, you just want to collapse. Yeah. The good thing, though, because, I mean, other, like, um, my sister lived in D.C. for a while and, like, been to Florida, obviously. So, like, I feel like those places get just as hot because of the humidity. But, like, you're outside a lot. And in Vegas, like, everyone knows it's hot. And so you go into places, like, you don't stay outside. And when you go into places, you're blasted with air conditioning. And so, like, no one's pretending here that it's anything but, like, really freaking hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, shade. Shade is a thing that, like, dry heat helps with. When I was on the East Coast, like, that was the worst part. Because humidity just, like, seeps into every part of your body, no matter where you are. Like, you could be in the yeah. sun. It'll feel the same as if you're in the shade, so... Yeah, no, the shade and ha like dry heat is so much better than humidity. I never want to live in humidity again. <laughs> I feel you there. Well, we've known Sarah for a really long time. Um, like most of our other podcasting connections, we met Sarah through the Harry Potter fandom. Um, and Sarah actually just recently finished her PhD. So she's here on the show today to discuss uh, her topic and answer a few questions about 
that field and also what it's like to be a millennial working in her field. Um, but first, I think we have a few other topics here. I know it's Pride Month. Does anyone have any Pride plans? I'm getting laid every day in June. That's my goal. Four days in, I'm four for four, baby. (laughs) No, I'm going to do the usual uh, pride parade. I don't have any other special plans, though, really, which kind of bums me out. I always feel like I should do something special, and then I don't. I don't know. Is anyone doing anything else besides, like, a pride parade? Pride parades in Vegas happen in October, and so I can't even do that. Yeah, it's the same in Atlanta. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? Too hot there in June? I don't know. They changed it a few years ago because it used to be in June. And like it seemed like it was just changing temporarily. Um, but then they very slowly were like, huh, just kidding. It's going to be forever in October. Huh. I think the That's reason that some places do it in October is because it coincides with National Coming Out Day. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe also since there are so many pride events in June as it is in America, maybe they want to try to get people like traveling to their city for October. Although yeah, I feel capitalism, like man. they kind of do a pretty good job of like for major cities, not putting them on the same day. Cause yeah. I, I definitely know that like the San Francisco pride parade is like always during the week of the 22nd in June. And then I, it never like overlaps with West Hollywood, which would be like the next biggest city over from us. So you could make a whole road trip out of it if you wanted to. Something I like about Chicago is they do it over two weekends. One weekend is a festival and another weekend is the parade. And then as if that weren't enough in September or no, August, they do something called market days here. And last year I, I was visiting Chicago over market days and I heard about market days, but I didn't know what it was. And when you hear market days, you just think some some event i don't it doesn't just really describe anything okay there's going to be a market <laughs> over a weekend well it turns out it is another gay pride type of event and it's actually bigger than chicago pride but i'm so fucking bummed cuz i'm actually not going to be here this year for market days so i have to make this month's pride celebrations uh make up for missing market days is that in september you said August. Oh, in August. Well, in September in San Francisco, we have the Folsom Street Fair, which if you were a fan of looking on HBO, you might have seen a little snippet of. uh, And it's the BDSM Fair, and that's equally as big of a deal as Pride. Yeah, see? That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I've seen photos from Folsom, and boy, that is a unique event. People just straight up walk around naked. everything else out here. Well, I mean, people (laughs) straight up walk around naked all day, every day in San Francisco, so... (laughs) The only rule is you got to bring a towel if you want to sit on a public bench. Oh, really? That's yeah. a rule? Have a little wow. consideration. You know, nobody wants to sit in somebody else's swamp ass. So, yeah, as if you're not <laughs> leaving any other gross things on a bench when you're, when you're sitting there sweating. <laughs> so when anyway. you go to San Francisco, never sit on benches, apparently. Yeah. Well, happy Pride to everybody. I love just saying happy Pride to people randomly. Like, that's my hello in the month of June. Like, I think when Sarah came on the call, I was just like, happy Pride. Hey, happy Pride. (laughs) It's a prideful month for video game enthusiasts. Last week, we had Laura's BF Mark on, and we talked about the Pokemon game coming for Nintendo Switch. They have since announced it. They didn't even wait for E3. They decided to announce it in advance this Pokemon game for Switch is called Let's Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee, and these are going to be modern versions 
of uh, Pokemon Yellow, which was actually a, a kind of a new spin on Pokemon Red and Blue back in the in the day. So this will be out later this year. It looks really good because it's got Pokemon Go integration. Um, and it, it's uh, it's based in the Kanto region, which is what, what, where uh, Yellow, Red, and Blue were set. And it just looks like a fun way to re-experience the original Pokemon game that we all fell in love with. So I'm looking forward to it. How did Mark react, Laura? Um, I think there was a lot of screaming, like happy <laughs> screaming. I wasn't with him. But I saw the notification in the news, and then immediately he texted me like, oh my god, have you watched this? Uh, and then he informed me that I'm getting a Switch so that we can play together. And I was like, oh, oh, that's that's cool. I'm getting a Switch. All right. I'm pretty excited about the fact that there are actual physical Pokeballs included with this that you can like carry <laughs> around with you in public and like pet and they'll vibrate and stuff. Yeah, it's like your <laughs> controller. You can you can play the game one-handed, which is actually kind of cool cuz honest to god, I love having my hand on my balls when I'm sitting on the couch, and now I can play a video game and keep my hand on my balls at the same time. It's actually really remarkable. And on your so, pokeballs. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> my balls and my pokeballs. <laughs> Happy pride. <laughs> So um, Nintendo also confirmed that in addition to the core series, that means we're like a, a new major game where they introduce a ton of new Pokemon. That'll be coming for Switch as well, but in 2019. So if you're annoyed that they're kind of remaking a classic, don't worry. You can wait until next year for the next big Pokemon game. Before we move on to a word from one of our sponsors, I just wanted to plug a little bit of bonus content we have up over at the Patreon, patreon.com slash millennial. Uh, I pierced yet another hole in my face. This time I got a septum piercing. And there's video evidence of me getting that up at Patreon, if you feel so inclined to watch such a thing. Huh. I think I will, and I'll film my reaction to you getting it done <laughs> and post that on Patreon, because um, it's probably going to make me uncomfortable to watch. Probably not. It actually looked painless. It was. Like, cause I watched it yesterday. Yeah, it was honestly the least pain. I've had a few piercings, and it was the least painful of any piercing I've ever had. Hmm. But okay. I think just cool. like the way that you have to be laying to get the piercing, you have to be laying on the table with your head hanging off the table and like this person is just above you with a needle so i think that'll make andrew really uncomfortable it remind me of uh you know what never mind i'm way too dirty at the beginning of the episode never mind Jeez. uh we have a guest here it'll remind you of what i listened to the show when 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 someone is feeding me balls happy pride <laughs> After every dirty statement Andrew makes in this episode, he's just going to say happy pride. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we move on to ask Sarah a few questions about her research, it's time for a quick update from one of our sponsors, BioClarity. Andrew and I have been using BioClarity for a few months at this point, and we wanted to let everyone at home know how it's going. My face has never been this clear, bright, and soft. I used to have problems with blackheads, and I thought I was doomed to a life of having the Sierra Nevada mountain range on my nose, but my blackheads are no more. BioClarity doesn't have any harsh chemicals, and it's so easy on your skin. It can be used twice daily to deliver clear, glowing skin. That's because it's packed with Floralux, which is naturally derived from chlorophyll, which is that green stuff plants need. 
I'm normally skeptical of skincare routines because I've never had much luck reducing redness in my face, but the Floralux calms and soothes so much that my iPhone's face ID is no longer like, um, you're not Laura, stop trying to break into this phone. <laughs> BioClarity is delivered straight to you and is an easy to use three-step skincare routine that is 100% vegan, gluten, and cruelty-free. BioClarity also offers an additional step called Hydrate, which is a lightweight moisturizer and personally my favorite step. Hydrate can be used alone or with the BioClarity system. Start a healthy habit and get glowing clear skin. Just go to bioclarity.com. Our listeners will get their first month for only $9.95 plus free shipping. That's a $20 savings and it comes with a 100% risk-free money-back guarantee. But you have to enter our code MIL. That's bioclarity.com and enter our code MIL. Yeah, that hydrate and Floralux stuff, they're mm. both so nice to put on your face. I know. I like to call it the the Hulk step because it's yeah. green and it like you put it on your face and you're temporarily green. <laughs> yeah. Temporarily, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. So Sarah, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us today. We came up with a few questions based on your research. Um And this can really go more like a flowing conversation. So if any of us have additional questions that come up over the course of it, we can just kind of throw those in. Or if there's anything you feel inclined to talk about that we don't necessarily ask about, feel free. Um, Sounds good. Cool. So to get started, could you give us an overview of what your PhD is in and what your dissertation topic was? Yeah. um, So I have a PhD in human development, um, with emphasis in marriage and family therapy. Um, so what that means is, uh, mostly therapy. Um, it was the focus of my coursework. Um, but the degree is more well-rounded and includes like, uh, the academic fields of like family studies and family sciences. Um, so my dissertation topic was on how same gender partners, um, have like discuss and negotiate outness decisions. Um, and it's something that actually like came to me right before I started my PhD. Um, I remember like I was in a relationship and my sister was mad that like my partner wasn't out and I was like, huh, I've never like realized that this can like extend beyond the partnership. Um, so I kind of sat with it for a few months and thought about it more and more. Um, and so the, I guess gist and bulk of my dissertation is on how poorly defined um, coming out and outness is. Uh, Throughout literature, we assume we know what we mean, but scholars have always used different definitions. And so that's really problematic because we're using the same words, but we mean vastly different things. And so from that, I wanted to see how partners negotiate and communicate how visible they are in relationships. So who knows about them? Like, are they out at work? Are they out to strangers? Um, Public displays of affection, things like that. Um, So I did interviews with 15 different couples in order to ask questions about that. Wow, that's amazing. That is incredible. Can, Can we also just take a step back and let me ask you, why did you decide to pursue a PhD? Because this is obviously a very big undertaking. Yeah, it is. Um, so 
there's a few different reasons. My field actually um, is one of the mental health fields where you don't need a PhD in order to practice. So my license as a mental health therapist is under my master's. And so it was purely optional. Um, I decided to go into a PhD because I really liked research. Um, That's since uh, changed a little bit, Um, but I'm kind of burnt out. So I mean, see where I am in a year. Uh, But I wanted to pursue academia. I really like training clinicians. And so I wanted to work in a master's program. Um, Again, most of these kind of goals have shifted over time, but that was my original intent of pursuing a PhD. I really love therapy. I love learning and talking about therapy. And I just wanted to be more on the academic scholarship side than the practitioner side. Interesting. So in your research, you note that coming out often isn't just about self-disclosure, but also about carving space for and normalizing homosexuality. Can you talk about the history of coming out and how it is discussed? Yeah. Um, So throughout scholarship history, so starting back in like um, the 70s was around the first time that we started discussing like identity formation models. Um, And to be clear, most of this, like my dissertation um, was I interviewed anyone that was LGB plus Um, but I mostly got people that were gay or lesbian. I think I got one bisexual person. And so, um, most of the scholarship that I have and most of the data focuses on people that, you know, have the one gender that they're attracted to, which I think affects things. Um, but throughout literature, um, there were different motivations, kind of like I was saying before, people mean different things. And so um, early on, they started with like stage models. And so what that means is that you move from one stage to another as you come out and as you kind of discover your identity. And so um, there was one scholar named Cass that wrote a paper. um, I think she wrote it back in the 70s, late 70s. And she saw coming out as a way to transform the discourse and carve out space, really like what you said, Laura. Um, and that was something that it was used to affect political change. But in the same year as that came out, there was another scholar who, again, wrote a stage model piece about identity formation. And from that, um, never once did coming out mean self-disclosure. It just meant seeking same gender partners, which is kind of crazy mm-hmm. to think about. <laughs> um, right. Because now coming out is is self-disclosure it's well I'm is it gay. i'm get well it's it's saying to the world i'm gay yeah and but the thing is that it's fascinating how everyone is kind of influenced by this history without knowing it one of the um main points of my data was i asked people about conversations they've had about coming out And almost every couple was like, oh, well, we're on the same page. We don't need to talk about this. And then in the interview, they would tell me different things. And Mm. they would like interject and be like, oh, I didn't know you thought that. Because it's just, it's so a part of what we think. But because no one is defining what we mean, everyone thinks that they're talking about the same thing still. And Mm. coming out, you know, it has... The LGBT community in general is really affected by cohort and generational differences. And so a lot of people are affected by what history they've lived through and what they know about. 
um, as well as what they identify as, what their life experience is. And so some people, yeah, Andrew, like really just think that that is what coming out is. And it's not that that's wrong. It's just that you might meet a partner that doesn't think that. Like, have you ever asked your boyfriend, you know, specifically, like, what does coming out mean to you? The right. answer is probably no, no because yeah. who would? <laughs> right, right. You're out? Yeah, I'm out. And I mean, really, the only variable is usually just, are you out to everybody or are you only out to select people? Yeah, and that's, um, it's been a huge trend. Um, and most of the literature of how it's been problematic is there are assumptions that kind of been carried on as time has moved. And so most of the people that talk about coming out now are talking about self-disclosure, but verbal self-disclosure has been privileged very heavily. And that is kind of, you know, from traces of other scholars and what they have thought without really tracking how these changes have been made. Um, which might be only interesting if you uh, read scholarship. So I don't know if this is very interesting or not. But um, a lot of the things that we think now, like may or may not come from what's actually going on, you know, from community members and what's important to be talking about. That is so interesting. I, I'm kind of a, like with Andrew here in that I always kind of assumed that coming out was just this proclamation of self. Um, and I never thought about it from the political standpoint before, but I suppose I can see it as also being intended for some people to carve out that space for themselves, particularly people who might come from families or communities that aren't as supportive. Yeah, and especially with what label you choose. I mean, right now we're seeing a resurgence of people reclaiming queer and so a lot of times what label people choose has to do with what motivates them. Um, I remember the first couple that I interviewed, um, they were very particular about they identified as dykes because it was radical and because they wanted to reclaim it and because it was important to their identity that they did. Um, whereas, you know, if I would have said that word to another couple, like they might have ended the interview. <laughs> right. So they go around to people and like, yeah, we're dykes. Um, I mean, I think that uh, they they sometimes they had some T-shirts that said that word on it. They had hats, too. So like maybe um, they mostly used it as jokes. And so like when people would make assumptions about their sexuality, they would like have some good one liners. They were really yeah. funny, actually. So <laughs> DGBTQ plus it's the new thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I, I did have an additional question because you just brought up the terminology of queer. I, you know, I feel like I hear this term being used a lot more because, as you said, people are reclaiming it. Um, and as a straight ally, I will confess, I am not 100% certain of the territory surrounding that terminology and when it is and is not appropriate. So I kind of just tend to try and follow the lead of you know, whoever I'm conversing with. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Asking is always okay, too. Um, what's interesting about working in mental health with this community is um, the amount of times I meet community members that use language that make me cringe or that, like, is so outdated or so problematic, but, you know, it's their language. And so um, it's really understanding the spaces. I think a good rule of thumb is 
if people are younger, queer is probably going to be more okay than if they're older. Um, Again, just from the generational differences with that word and kind of uh, the work of reclaiming it. Um, But it's always okay to ask, like, what what identity fits you? Like, what do you call yourself? Um, That's never an offensive question, especially if you, you know, if you have good intentions, people know that. Um, And that's one thing that's really seen with marginalized folk is kind of minority stress um, and dealing with being othered in a world and being oppressed is you become really good um, at noticing nonverbals, at noticing what people mean, what they might not be saying. And so we can feel intention usually. And so if you are asking, you know, genuinely and you're caring, that usually people will recognize that and answer appropriately. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. In my circle of gay people that I know, um, it, it's used very commonly now, more than LGBT, actually. Uh, I know yeah. people who almost exclusively use queer. Yeah, LGBT is actually kind of falling out. Um, I don't think it will, but there's a push to be um, gender and sexual minorities, so GSMs. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that sh- should happen or could happen um but i mean things move so fast it's like kind of mean girls territory when they're like changing all the rules so quickly on like what you can and can't do um that's really how the community works and so it's hard to keep up (laughs) well i guess one reason it's progressing away from lgbt and more towards queers because it's very obvious that there are so many labels that we can't really fit them all under lgbtqia plus like this is this is what we've been trying to do by adding more letters to it but i think people are realizing maybe it just makes more sense if we use queer if we take that queer is it also because it's like non-binary though and there's kind of like a push for that like it's a little bit more is it a little more encompassing um, it depends. So it's it's very funny and like a bit ironic at times because the LGBT community became that um, mostly out of political strategy. It was to create a, a mass voice in order to have political change um, and to be more intelligible, um, which I'll talk about later because uh, it's a theoretical thing. But a lot of people don't like it. We have different thoughts. Um, horizontal oppression is what it's called when different identities. So like if a lesbian is really disparaging of someone who's bisexual or someone who's trans. Um, and so that happens a lot within the community. And so I think that people started going back to queer to be all encompassing of multiple identities, which I say is ironic because um, my dissertation was founded theoretically on queer theory. And uh, queer is not supposed to be an identity at all. So, like, now that people are using it to be a well-rounded identity and, like, an inclusive identity, um, I think would make many queer theorists cringe. um, Because queer is the opposite. Queer is to mock and to exclude and to not focus on identity. Um, So, it's kind of funny, but, I mean, I like queer better than LGBT right now as, like, a person in the community. Mm Mm-hmm. Gotta be honest, it's hard for me. Like, I would never use, I I would never say I'm queer. I would never, I don't, I'm not ready yet to use the word queer much at all. I've, I guess maybe because I've grown up on LGBT, that this is just the way it has to be for me for the foreseeable future. Well, also, you're, you're going to, um, 
as a gay man face less horizontal oppression than other identities in LGBT. And this is true. So that's a huge part of it too, which isn't anything like against you. It's against society. <laughs> right. Yeah. Although now I want to start calling myself a dyke. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't... Steal that from lesbians. Can't do that. No, lesbians have enough that they've been affected by. And and Andrew, we do not scissor. I we do not. <laughs> oh, tell okay. Discussion canceled. We're talking about this for the next hour. Oh my god. <laughs> no, thank you for thank you for clarifying. I'll uh, put that into my notes. Happy pride to you. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's enough scholarship discussion here that we can table the scissoring discussion for another time. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, Happy Sarah, um, let's talk about the matrix of intelligibility. How does the matrix work? Because as I told you, I tried to wrap my head around it and I was <laughs> having a really hard time. Um, and what does it mean for the lived experiences of LGB persons? Yeah. Um, so the matrix is very complicated. Like I literally spent hours like reading a sentence over and over to try and understand. Um, matrix of intelligibility is a concept from queer theory and queer theory as a whole is um, mostly criticized for being very abstract and having like a high cost of entry in order to understand. And so if you don't understand this, then like that is better. <laughs> but um, I thought of kind of a good metaphor, I think, um, to explain uh, the gist of matrix of intelligibility and in queer theory. Um, so have you guys all seen a goofy movie? I know that, that oh. came out like years ago, oh, but it's resurging itself. <laughs> Cheese was baby. Yeah, exactly. So that character um, in the sequel, which by the way, don't watch, it's terrible, um, but it's on <laughs> Netflix. Uh, but in the sequel, that character is like in a bar and is like, have you ever noticed we're all wearing gloves? And that is a pretty good example because queer theory, like obviously they're wearing gloves because it's hard to draw hands and they're drawn, but they're not supposed to commentate on that. Like that's supposed to go under the radar. So queer theory and the matrix of intelligibility is something that you, you can't live outside of it. It's a way that we categorize people and it upholds current power structures. Um, so it's based on what, what categories we think are real. So for example, like we see a man and we have natural assumptions that fall under that. So we might think they have a penis, they have leadership qualities, they have short hair, et cetera, et cetera. And if we see all these things in someone, we can easily categorize them as man. But if we see someone who doesn't fit in our box, then we're likely to render them unintelligible. And what that means is that they are likely to be punished. And punishment can go from being put in like mental health institutions to being jailed, to being, uh, you know, given lack of privileges, further oppression. And so being unintelligible is not a good place to be. And so it forces people to conform to the categories. So queer theory doesn't seek to change this, it seeks to mock it, like very honestly, just to make jokes about it, defy it, critique it, and commentate on it. So to always be pointing out that we're wearing gloves. We can't take the gloves off, but we're always wearing these gloves. That is, like, you just opened my mind. <laughs> you are, oh my gosh, you would be a great teacher. Um, 
Yeah, because I, as I said, like when I was reading over it, I was like, I know that Sarah spent literal years working on this, so she'll be able to tell me what the hell is going on here. (laughs) (laughs) It's very complicated. And so like it, it's something that I think people should try and focus on Mm -hmm. making it make more sense, but uh, queer theorists aren't about that. (laughs) So yeah, we're stuck here reading all this complicated jargon and mess. Yeah. How do the heteronormative representations of relationships, families, PDA, etc., impact same-gender couples in relation to their outness? So the way that the matrix is uh, constraining queer people, um, and I'll say queer uh, just for ease at this point, um, is we, in order to avoid the punishment and being rendered unintelligible, we fall into what's called homonormativity. So homonormativity is essentially everything that heteronormativity is within a queer identity. And so it's things like same-gender marriage. It's things like any any attempts to politically say, hey, we're just like you, heterosexual people, is homonormativity. Um, and... The issue with this is that by behaving in homonormative ways, you are making people that are unable to do so because it's hard for them to fit categories. You're further oppressing them. And so you are gaining more of a spotlight, but at what cost and who are you leaving behind? Um, And so that is something that like you see a lot. And I saw a lot within the data that I collected. Um, there's also false dichotomies. Um, so false dichotomies very simply means that there's uh, kind of a binary that's put up, but one upholds the other into their privileged position. And so heterosexuality and queer identities. If we didn't abide by queer identities, then heterosexuality would fall. But by maintaining that, we're upholding the false dichotomy um, and that binary. So withoutness a lot of times what happens is the false dichotomy falls into being out as healthy, being out as pride, being out is all these good things. And we've fallen into this rhetoric that really leaves people that for whatever reason, you know, personal, like feeling like they'll be outcasted by their family, their work won't let them come out or like they'll be at risk of being fired. Like whatever the threat is to them, they are still going to feel shame around not being out and feel like it's not healthy. Um, And many of the people that I interviewed, um, I had one couple in particular, and like, they were great. They were such an interesting couple to interview. They have been together for over 10 years. They had kids, but only one of them was like the parent. The other one just lived at home and was kind of known by his first name to the children. Um, And so they saw themselves as a couple, but like to the world, they didn't present that way. Um, and oftentimes, like if people would come into town, like one of the partners would literally move out of the house in order to keep like everything quiet. And, but it like their relationship was great. And when I was asking different questions at the end, the partner that was very closeted said, you know, this has worked out for us, but it's no way to live. And, 
many of the closeted people that I talked to or people that were, you know, at the very least less out than their partner felt that shame, felt like they should have been out quicker, felt like there was something wrong with them. And that's really sad. Like people shouldn't be made to feel like they are wrong because they're making a choice. Have you read the book, The Velvet Rage? I have not. Okay. Um, It is about how particularly gay men deal with shame, deal with coming into terms with their sexuality because they just are overwhelmed with shame. And there are examples um, of, this is a guy actually, a doctor himself, like you, Mm -hmm. who has lots of clients who he tries to help with this type of issue. You should absolutely read it. Um, Yeah, I will. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a tough issue for people. Like, I personally don't like PDA between me and my boyfriend or any <laughs> boyfriend. There's been times where I will do it, but it just feels uncomfortable to me. Yeah, and, that's and- actually really funny that you say that because almost every couple that I interviewed said the same thing. And I was like, huh, this is fascinating. And uh, again, going back to the Matrix, um, the reason why it works is because we police each other like we uphold it it's not like some force outside of us like it's us policing our neighbors us policing our friends us policing ourselves and that is you know it's not wrong to feel that way but that is something that's not yours that is societally based because we are told that it's not okay we are told that it's unprofessional or it's off-putting or it's wrong and so that is the culture that we've all been raised in and so we've internalized that and we use it to police ourselves and each other this is not like the same but i was uh watching this video about this girl talking about being blind and she was specifically talking about like that blind people sometimes will wear sunglasses because like they don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable if they're they can't control the way their eyes move so is it like a is it like overcompensation for that or is that not the case at all I mean, I think that that's a good example. Um, to be honest, like I, my, I asked a question about this and I got some data, but like my dissertation didn't focus on it. So I couldn't say like empirically, like what the reason is. Um, I just know that it's something interesting that like there's some sort of group thinking, cultural expectation and norm around PDA. And like that should be explored because people are thinking it's theirs. And again, like some people, they might not like PDA, but it's the fact that we don't know that because we don't know what's making everyone say that they don't like it. For me, it's just, I don't want straight people judging me. I don't want them looking and thinking anything about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it sucks. And I, you know, I'm not proud of it. I wish I didn't feel that way, but I just can't help it. Well, it's because matrix intelligibility you would be punished if you were rendered unintelligible and so you try to conform right it's normal and it's what we should expect from anyone to behave but it's just sad yeah and the thing that really gets me about this is i think that culturally we we have this norm now that like everyone's okay with being gay like gay marriage is legal now and the the types of like outward persecution that gay people are facing now are much different than what they were facing before. So I think there's this false sense of security that a lot of straight people assume that gay people have now. Yeah. 
And it's like... I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, like, it's still very realistic that depending on where you are, you could actually be attacked for Mm -hmm. doing PDA in public. Right. And a lot of the reason why, like, we don't know why there's not the same, you know, persecution. Is it because society has gotten better or queer people have gotten better at conforming? You know, it kind of reminds me of like kind of Handmaid's Tale watching that. Mm -hmm. And like when they do flashbacks and I mean, it's not good for women in the past, but it's way better than Gilead. And so, but like watching how things slowly kind of change and, you know, in hindsight, you kind of see more things. And so right now, like, you know, maybe people don't feel at risk of being harmed. Although, um, again, depending on age, some people still do. I got a lot of couples that were very hesitant, depending on where they were, and they, they had fears of physical altercations from their identities, whereas younger couples didn't. Um, and so it really just depends, but it's Well, I'm, it's I'm glad rough. to hear that younger couples don't feel the same way as the older couples, but, I mean, that unfortunately does still happen today. Yes. Yeah, it does. And I think that it's it's kind of it's kind of not good that young people don't feel that way. I mean, I don't want anyone yeah. to feel at risk of harm, but it's just like anything else. We have to not forget where we were. And for young queer youth not to know their history is terrible. And like, I mean, we're kind of living in that era now where we're seeing things repeat if, and like we are forgetting or we're acting as though it won't happen again. And so we really need to make sure that all of our history stays in the forefront because otherwise we're maybe going to have some repercussions and some old milestones that we've made go back on it. Um, I have actually a question about that because I've only ever heard one other person around my age who also is gay uh, talk about how he feels a disconnect from his generation because a lot of people his age don't know their own history and where they came from. Um, But obviously, like, that's not taught in schools unless maybe you seek it out in higher education. So, like, how, what is, like, the best way maybe if somebody listening is thinking, like, man, I need to, like, read up on, you know, like, you know, what other people went through so that I could feel this free, I mean, like, what's the best way for people to do that? Is it through talking to people that have lived through it or reading about yeah. it online? Um, I mean, I think that it, whatever way you learn could be best. But I think that the mindset you have to have and something that is really easy to fall into is what I like to call like the oppression Olympics, where you get really comparative. Um, and so it makes you not listen as much because you're like, oh, well, you know, this doesn't apply to me or like we have it worse off. And a lot of times, I mean, these are real people. And so when I was interviewing people, I mean, I look, I look my age and I at worst look younger. And so most of the people I interviewed knew that. And so I heard a lot of things that were very generalized statements of like, oh, like you youngins don't know, or like, you don't know what it used to be like, you know, during AIDS or during Stonewall or during this or during that. And it's very easy when people do that to turn off. Um... So I think that it's just about you being comfortable in yourself and knowing that like you don't need to be validated in that way because everyone is hurting and everyone is projecting and everyone is going through their own pain. And 
recognizing that when you start to learn these things, that way you're open to understanding the history. You do talk to people outside of your own echo chamber. Um, LGBT centers are great places. Um, YouTube is a great place for queer things, but really try and make sure that you're outside of your own experience. Um, I know that it's really easy if you're gay to just follow people that are gay, or if you're trans guy, just to follow trans guys, but like really try and diversify in order to get a well-rounded perspective. Yeah, I agree. This with is that. like an e easy solution, but a movie like Milk. That's a very good movie. Yeah. Uh, displaying the gay rights movement. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Steelman, transitioning into the counseling side of this conversation, in general, do you feel that clinicians and therapists are adequately prepared to address the issues and needs, uh, um, both internal and external, faced by LGBT persons? And in what ways could we be doing better for this community? Uh, no, I don't think we're adequately prepared. Um, it, it, it is anger inducing how most, most mental health organizations are still at annual conferences discussing whether we should, re we can refer out. And so like that concept of like, once you know that someone is gay, like, can you give them to another clinician? Because that's outside of your scope. And, like, is that ethical? And, like, it's just, it's bullshit. Holy shit. Um, yeah, like, that is legitimately still actively talked about. And it's bonkers. Um, but there was actually a 2012 or no, 2010 study um, about how clinicians felt they were with their training. And a majority of the people in the uh, assessment said that they didn't feel that they were adequately trained on LGB topics. They felt that they had an only moderate understanding about how heterosexism and discrimination affected clinical practice. Um, and this is really problematic because there was a study done in 2000 that showed that for the most part, when, when marginalized folk in general, but in particular, this one talked about queer people, um, when queer people come in for therapy, they are often coming in to work through external stressors. So what that means is sometimes people can come to my office and like, you know, they have communication skills or they have like anxiety problems. Those are all internal things. Like in order to help with that, we work on coping mechanisms. We work on communication skills, et cetera, like something that they can change. But a lot of times for queer people, it's, you know, my neighborhood is unsafe for me to walk around with my kids or like, I don't know if I can come out at work and be safe or different things like that, that like, I can't teach you any skills to make that better besides like society needs to change. And so if we are asking clinicians how well they feel trained on discrimination and heterosexism, and they're saying not really, but that's the most of what we're dealing with then that's a problem. And so for most LGB clients and LGBT clients, actually, um, they come by word of mouth. And so it's really difficult. You know, most of my clients, it happens pretty quick. Like I started working in Las Vegas again, um, like a year and a half ago. Um, and like, I have a lot of queer clients. Um, and most of them find me. 
But it makes it hard for me because I have to think about, you know, if I work in an agency, a lot of times agencies, you call like a front desk and then you're assigned. And so I don't get clients, clients get given to me. And so queer people, if they're going through an agency process, they might not find someone affirmative. And so like a lot of times it means that queer people have to travel farther for resources. I have multiple clients that come to me from Arizona which they drive two hours to mm. see me. Wow. For a while, it was every week. And so they drive more. They pay more. They sometimes don't use insurance, even if they have insurance. And it's just the process is a lot harder than it is if you were coming in for anxiety or depression. Because any therapist should be able to work with anxiety and depression. But to have a therapist that understands like what the external factors are and how to not pathologize what you're going through and how to understand like the conversational dynamics. So for example, an interesting thing in my interviews is I noticed that, like I said, in every couple, they all kind of place themselves at different stages of outness or different like amounts And so there was always someone who viewed themselves as more out. And throughout the interview, they would always look to their less out partner when answering a question. And the less out partner would look to me, which is like, a yeah, it was really fascinating. And it was interesting as I saw it happen. Um, But there was also like differences of who talked more, who talked less. And those are things that can easily be read as like, you know, uh, power struggles in a relationship or potential abuse or discomfort and like really pathologize and like problematic things. And so, you know, even just basic assessment, I think you need to understand your history in order to know not to pathologize normative processes for these members of the community. Mm. Hmm. And final question, how has the right wing swing, so the election of Donald Trump and the subsequent Republican takeover of both Uh, houses of Congress impacted LGBT individuals from a mental health standpoint? Yeah, um, it was something that came up a lot Um, in my dissertation. Actually, I had to like write a paragraph about how my data was affected because of when I did it, because people had thoughts about our Kermit political climate. Um, But it really fell into like how they were affected had to do with personality and had to do with their take on queerness. And so, for example, like people that fall into that political change and like we're doing this to reshape a discourse uh, were radicalized. Like they made comments like a few different couples were like, you know, we used to be flag wavers, but like we wanted to settle down and like you know, relax, but I guess we have to pick up the flag again. And like, we're not going back in the closet without a fight. But other people were just like, scared, and Mm. fearful. And so, you know, it's it kind of fell into that fight or flight response. Um, And a lot of that, again, had to do with how they saw queer identity and how they saw their role in queer history. Um, But for sure, everyone was affected. And even those that were radicalized, I mean, like, that's draining. And that's a lot to put on people. And so I can imagine lots of these people, I tried to think about every couple that I interviewed, if they ended up in a therapy office, how they would be treated. And it made me sad, because I was like, I felt like a lot of them might be 
kind of pushed in a direction to break up or to question some of the healthy things that were going on. Um, and, you know, if you know me personally, like I'm a very, I don't agree with the institutions of marriage. I don't agree with relationships. Um, I'm a very uh, like pro singlehood person. And so for me to say this means a lot, like I genuinely think that every couple I interviewed should stay together and had a healthy relationship and marriage. And so for me to think about that and know how like uh, pessimistic I can be, and then to think that if any of them did need mental health services, how that might be jeopardized um, makes me angry. Yeah, understandably so. Well, you've given us so much to think about today, Sarah. And in After Dark today, we're actually going to talk more with you about PhD life, um, kind of what you wish you knew going in, if you were able to achieve a work-life balance, and if you're receiving a return on your educational investment, et cetera, um, issues that impact millennials seeking higher education. Yeah. Sounds good. So, this has been very enlightening. Yes. And I think as a teaser, we'll just say that you actually don't wish you pursued a PhD. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess um, I'll give like a tidbit. There was um, a literal like instance that happened um, I was in a, so for clinical degrees, you have practicum. Um, I mean, I think other degrees too, but anyone that you have a practical um, kind of setting. And so one of my supervisors gave me a lower grade. And so being a good student, I asked like, what can I do to be a better clinician? Like, should I be looking at something else differently? And I got sent like a three page letter saying that he didn't like how heavily identified as gay. Oh my um, God. Yeah. And <laughs> the, Instances like that happen throughout my education. <laughs> wow. And it's interesting to hear you say that after sharing such fascinating information with us. I mean, I think the three of us agree that we're glad you pursued this PhD because you've been able to share a lot of important information. And I think you're a much better person because of it. Um, it sounds like you have a bright future ahead. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> I'm going to come in. I need, I need to sit down with you and, uh, you got to help me out. Interview me and my boyfriend. Tell tell me how we're doing. That doesn't sound unethical at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, we have some news to discuss today still. Uh, but first, it's time to hear from another one of our sponsors. They are ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process, but today hiring can be easy and and you only have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter.com slash millennial. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. ZipRecruiter is so effective, actually, that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that, that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash millennial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash millennial, M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L. ZipRecruiter.com slash millennial. 
ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. To start the news off, I want to ask you three a question. If there's one thing you spend too much time on your phone doing, what is it? Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but Facebook. Oh, Laura, I thought you hated Facebook. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I can't quit you. I know. It's like Brokeback yeah. Mountain, but Facebook. <laughs> yeah, m- mine is for sure YouTube. Okay. For sure YouTube. How about you, I'm Pam? on YouTube for so long. <laughs> um, I think mine is actually a tie between uh, YouTube and Twitter. Okay, okay. Well, Apple is here to help. They announced iOS 12 on Monday, and actually they announced a feature that is very similar to one we spoke about that Android is introducing this year as well. I actually thought Apple might take another year or two to do this, but it turns out they've been developing it too. Uh, They're going to help improve your digital health. Like Android's feature that we talked about a few months ago, you're going to, or a few weeks ago, you're going to be able to see how much time you're spending within each one of your apps, how often you pick up your phone, how often you unlock it, stuff like that. And then you can set limits for the individual apps. So if you think, Laura, that you're spending too much time in Facebook and you want to cut it down, which actually that's my answer to Facebook, you can cut it down to a certain amount of time. And then iOS will say when you hit that time limit, hey, it's time to stop using this app. And then they didn't really show the details of it, but I think it's going to prevent you from getting in. You can override it if you must, I believe, but you might have to go into the settings and kind of unlock it again. Uh, But tools like this are going to help you be less addicted to your phone and it'll help you not be so stressed out. For example, your lock screen can now hide notifications overnight. So if you pick up your phone in the middle of the night, you don't have to see all the notifications. It'll just look like an alarm clock. And then in the morning, it'll say to you on the screen, good morning. And you don't see and, and you don't see all of your notica- notifications until you tap a certain button. So I can get up, I can look at my phone a couple times, and I don't have to see all my notifications until I have my first cup of coffee. I really like that. Who said they don't like that? This I, is exciting. Yeah, I don't want I don't want my phone to say good morning. That oh. sounds too much like the beginning well, of Black Mirror. <laughs> it's not gonna it's not gonna say good morning out loud, it's just gonna say it on the screen. That's still good that's morning, a touch Sarah. too far for me. <laughs> Everything else I was kinda fine with, but I don't I don't want it saying good morning to me. <laughs> Sarah, it's Apple. Are you sure you don't scissor? <laughs> <laughs> Pam, you like also this? don't want it saying that to me. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love this so much because I I think that definitely like if I like if I get up to take my dog to the bathroom in the middle of the night or something, I'll usually just check the time on my phone because it's you know right there. And if I see all the notifications, it's like oh, I'm gonna have to deal with this like tomorrow morning, you know. Right. But I try and forget about it. But then like you wake up and there's more. And I've yeah. like significantly cut back too on the things that I allow push notifications to come in for. So Right. Yeah, I so agree with that. I'm a little scared to see how often I'm using all of my apps and waking up my phone. Um it's gonna be really interesting to look at these stats for the first time and I think it'll show some interesting trends. You can also see your history not just over the past twenty four hours, but also the past seven days. So you'll be able to see um, how you're doing. 
Um, another thing that'll help us hate our phones less, it's gonna start grouping notifications together. Thank freaking God. So if you're in a group chat and you're getting like 50 messages and you load up your screen and you see this never ending list of messages, now all the messages from a group chat are going to be put together and then you could tap just to open up those notifications. And same thing with different people as well. And then, you know, like your email app, you won't have a million emails listed on your lock screen. You're just going to see one from Gmail. I'm looking forward to stuff like this. Um, they also announced Memoji. You're going to be able to create your own Animoji. <laughs> so, Laura, get ready for some uh, Memojis from me. Oh, you know you're going to get some from me, too. I love it. Uh, there's also group FaceTime. And also, this was another big thing. Apple has basically admitted, they, they said this internally and then it leaked. And now, after today's presentation, it's pretty obvious. They're spending this year improving the inside of the operating system um, to squash bugs, to speed up the phone. They're trying to speed up phones that are as old as the iPhone 6. They shared some major speed improvements they made, they made there. Um, so this one seems like it's going to be an, an update that will be welcomed by everybody. I know Android's been shitting on them for how they treat their older phones. So maybe Apple is responding to that. I hope that they're going to make their face ID function a bit better. Um, doesn't work well. Well, it works well for me, but it does not work well for Mark. Hmm. And it's like he gets really mad at it because half the time he like pulls it up and like it tries to identify his face and then it gives that little bounce indication that's like, oh, no, face not recognized. And half the time if he's like trying to do an emoji, it will come up with a notification that's like too dark. Like the lighting's too dark. And I will try to do it in the same exact lighting and it has no problem with my skin tone. Yeah. So he'll just be like, racist Siri. <laughs> but wait, no, but seriously, I'm actually shocked that that's a thing that is happening because you would think that Apple would have made sure that wasn't a problem. So that's crazy to me. Yeah. I, I feel like I would have, I would have assumed that that would happen because I yeah. think I, we're not over racism, I guess. Who knew? Not even Siri is. Well, and I think the thing is, I mean, I'm sure the technology to make that work across various skin tones is more complicated than most of us understand. But I guess to me, like I, I come to expect more from Apple because they're Apple. Right. Um, And it it would be one thing if this had been a glitch with the software when the phones first came out, but the iPhone 10 has been out for almost a year. Like they've, they've had time to fix it. It's mostly honestly, and then we can like move on from this because this is like probably a bigger conversation than we have time for. But I think I'm just mostly surprised since a lot of what like the problem is, is like lighting most likely from the screen that they didn't factor that into how bright the screen can go automatically, like if they can't detect right, a darker exactly. skin tone. So it, like the same thing happens in Hollywood, like people like notoriously do not know how to light for black faces. So, mm. Yeah iOS 11 on a whole has been a pretty big mess over the past year. They've Mm -hmm. released more updates for this operating system than any other. Um, I have this stupid ass bug where sometimes I don't get messages on the lock screen or my watch. And then I open up my phone and then I see them. 
that is incredibly frustrating I, because I it means I have too. to keep opening up my phone every time I want to see a message. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad I'm not yeah. alone. No, I didn't know why that started happening, but yeah, I've been noticing oh. that over at least the past several weeks that like yeah. I don't get notifications. Yeah, it started like two months ago for me. I and it, you know, Apple wants to make us use our phone less. Well, that is not helping. I'm thinking of doing an entire reinstall of the operating system because I can't wait another few months for iOS 12. I cannot deal with that for another few months. Um, and they also released other updates for their other products, but we won't get into that. But I uh, thought we should update people there because all of us, I know everybody here on the panel uses Apple products, and I imagine most of our listeners do as well. Um, I still think iOS is a lot better than Android. So I agree. Um, so we do have an update story. Uh, some of you of you will remember that a few months ago we discussed the case of the Colorado baker who refused to decorate and sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple, went to the Supreme Court, and SCOTUS, excuse me, SCOTUS, can't talk, <laughs> SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, um, ruled in favor of the Colorado baker in the same-sex wedding cake case. Um, so this has been, this story's make, been making the rounds a lot. Um, obviously, lots of strong opinions on both sides of this story. Um, I did want to take a minute to sort of talk about what this means legally, and then we can go into what it means socially. So Emoji. this ruling applies actually to a very narrow issue and does not Emoji. change any laws or set any new legal precedents. So legally this should not be able to impact laws surrounding or anti-discrimination laws rather. Um, it doesn't mean that the Supreme court is saying that it's totally legal and okay to refuse to sell things to LGBT couples or other members of minority groups. Rather, it says that the ruling was based on um, the Colorado commission that ruled against Jack Phillips, who was the baker, um, and that they acted with hostility, which means they made hostile statements in regards to Phillips' religion, informing his decision to deny service to the gay couple. So the Supreme Court is basically saying here that they're not really ruling on the legality of selling or decorating a cake. They're more ruling about the fact that this case probably shouldn't have come to them in the first place. Mm. And that the Colorado Commission that ruled that most of their ruling didn't seem to have much to do with discrimination, that it was more a hostile ruling towards Phillips and his religious objections. Um, and this is a quote from SCOTUS's ruling here. They said these disputes must be resolved with tolerance, without undue disrespect to sincere religious beliefs, and without subjecting gay persons to indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. So I think it's all well and good to look at the legal argument for this and say, Supreme Court has not set any kind of precedent where now it is legal to refuse services to gay people. However, that doesn't mean that ignorant people won't use this story as justification for discrimination. Absolutely. They're going to feel vindicated. Right. There are going to be new cake shops opening up 
uh, or closing down, I should say, their rules <laughs> to gay people. Right. Like, I don't have to make gay cakes anymore. Woo! Like Donald Trump Jr. was on Twitter celebrating this decision and clearly had not bothered to read the the decision itself. Um, Shocking. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, I think people like that are going to look at this and read it as, oh, SCOTUS rules in favor of Christianity over gay people. And that's not what it was. Um, So I think this is an area where (sighs) a stronger ruling would have been helpful, or at least not a seven to two ruling. I mean, this, this went seven to two in favor of the Baker. So you're talking about a majority of the liberal justices on the court also siding in favor of the Baker. Um, so I feel like that sends a message as well. Um, I think also their, their ruling statement wasn't, it was a bit wishy-washy in my opinion. I think that, there could have been some stronger language in there used to say like, hey, we're not saying this is right. We condemn any kind of discrimination. However, what we're ruling on here isn't the discrimination aspect of this case. Right. But I, I don't think they did a good enough job delineating those issues for the general public who is pretty stupid. Right. In a way, this is a win for people like us because now we get to see some of these businesses who are discriminatory suffer. Fuck them. Great. You're not making cake for these gay couples? That's very nice. Jesus is very happy with you. And uh, now you're making less money. So joke's on you, bitch. Yeah, well, and the funny thing is a lot of people who misunderstood the ruling uh, understood it to mean that bakeries like this one could refuse to sell like an off-the-shelf cake, one that's not customized or decorated, and they can't do that. <laughs> they cannot do that. The only thing this said was that this particular baker did not have to decorate this particular cake. That's all it said. So yes, this couple or any other gay couple could still walk into his bakery and buy a cake. Imagine turning down money because you want to be loyal to your religion, to what you believe your religion tells you. That guy better be making the most money out of all bakers in Colorado to be able to do that because all the small business people I know would take the money. Yeah, that's the part I can't get over. You're turning down cash. That cash doesn't have cum all over it that's going to make you gay. That's cash that'll fill your pockets. Yeah, but it's not it's not about the religion. This guy wasn't refusing to sell a cake as a result of a religious objection. He's a bigot. Yeah. Well, wasn't the argument that his religion was, as you've written here, informing his, his decision? Yeah, I mean, his religion I, did yes. inf- inform his bigotry and his decision. <laughs> yeah. That is the argument of most bigots, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this just in, our Patreon will no longer accept... Pledges from gay people. I am sorry to say it is against my religion. Cool. I save $5 a month. (laughs) (laughs) That's really weird, Andrew. Are you like one of those Republican lawmakers who hates gay people and then we catch him a few months later in a bathroom stall getting a blowjob from a dude? 
I don't recall sharing that tape with you, okay. but right. uh, we'll yeah. just move and it, on. It won't be a few months later because he said he wants to have sex every day of Pride Month. <laughs> so. Tomorrow's bathroom stall day. Happy Pride. <laughs> uh, not a happy Pride for Facebook. They are in hot water again. The New York Times learned that Facebook gave device makers like Apple, like Samsung, deep access to friend data. And um, the reason this happened, this was actually based on an old system that Facebook had in place. In the early days, Facebook didn't have the resources to create apps for every damn phone, smartphone imaginable. So they said to the phone developers, we'll give you the keys to everybody's accounts, and then you can develop the integrations for your own phones. So this has actually been around until April when they had announced that they were pulling this back. Uh, but the New York Times investigation uncovered the deep level of access that these phone makers had. Um, Facebook argues this was okay because they needed help building the Facebook apps. Um, but the users, us, we weren't aware that phone makers had so much access. And not just to our friends. This is another instance where the phone makers also had access to our, the data of our friends of friends. And the New York Times report has an example of a single person, um, how, how much data a phone maker could glean from a sing, having access to a single person's account. In one instance, a phone maker, in this case BlackBerry, had access to 294,000 profiles thanks to having access to one account, one phone. So this just this just really, more than anything, has made me want to quit Facebook. It, I feel like every week we're hearing about how Facebook has been sucking ass with privacy. While Apple and others, say Snapchat, say Twitter, seem to have this shit under control. But for some reason, Facebook is just a fucking mess. And I am really done with them. Yeah, I feel like stuff like this and also just a natural progression away from Facebook that a lot of people seem to be having has really limited the kind of data that I put on Facebook nowadays. Not because I'm scared of them getting it, because I don't put anything on the internet that I don't want people to have anyway. Um, but I mean, I used to share a lot more stuff on Facebook. You know, I used to put a lot more personal information up, and I haven't done that in a very long time. And I think it's a result of this and also just a natural result of people moving on to other social platforms that don't suck as much. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't know how I feel about this because on the one hand, I feel apathetic because I don't put anything on there. I don't want them to have anyway. Um, and also I recognize that anytime you're using a free service, you are the product and they're obtaining information and data from you in order to market back to you and make their money. Um, and also because I'm not under any illusion that anything we do on the internet is private ever. Yeah. Still doesn't make it Facebook, right. I just have very complicated feelings. <laughs> Facebook needs to tell you what you are handing over every time you 
agree to give your account to somebody. We should have known from the get-go that if we're logging to our Facebook through Apple settings, that they were going to have access to our friends' data, like their relationship information, just one example, and our friends of friends' data. I mean, that is just ridiculous. And by the way, during WWDC, Apple's big event today, um, they also smacked Facebook hard. In the next version of Safari, that's their web browser, they are going to be turning off like buttons and Facebook comment widgets on websites off by default. And Safari will warn you that, and this is something a lot of people don't know, when web developers, let's say Hypable, puts a, when we put a like button on an article, you know, hey, like this article so your friends see that you liked it. That little widget is actually tracking you across the web because it's everywhere on the web. Same with the Tumblr share button. Same with the Twitter share button. Same with the Facebook um, comment widget that I mentioned. So you can leave Facebook comments on an article. All this stuff tracks you. And Apple smacked Facebook and these other social media sites hard today. And I fucking love it. Apple doesn't give a fuck that they're taking away the like buttons. <laughs> I think that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I think it's nice. But I mean... I don't know. Apple also knew that they were taking advantage of Facebook lying to us about what their privacy policies did and did not cover. Yeah. Well, they should answer for that too. Yeah. But, you know, Apple isn't tracking us to sell advertising, unlike Facebook. That's true. I, Apple really only tracks you to learn more about um, any problems you might have with the operating system, as far as I know. Yeah. Well, also to see your nudies in the cloud. Yes, that's true. Sorry, Jennifer Lawrence. (laughs) Poor thing. We have one more sponsor this week. They are Omaha Steaks. Summer is here, baby, and Father's Day is just around the corner. So you know what you need for either you or dad. Some freaking meat, baby. And no, I'm not talking about the type of meat I see on certain adult film sites I recently recommended. I'm talking about meat from Omaha Steaks. We all love being outside during the summer, and one of the best parts of the warmer months is grilling. Heating up the grill, throwing some meat down, cooking it to perfection with a drink in hand. Ah. Omaha Steaks has your summer and Father's Day needs covered. They offer true convenience, quality, and flexibility. Just take a look at their website. They have so many fun options for groups of all sizes. A few weeks ago, Laura and I both received a variety of different meats, including traditional burgers, steaks, hot dogs and even apple tartlets. Omaha Steaks delivered them all in a reusable cooler, and each of the products are individually boxed, so it's easy to keep them sorted when you move them into the freezer, when you're just organizing your cluttered fridge. I've been through most of my box now. I have to say my favorite so far have been the boneless pork chops and the hot dogs. Laura, you and Mark have been enjoying what they sent, right? Have you succumbed to the delicious smells of Omaha Steaks yet? Um, I have not. I've been sorely tempted, though, because they do smell amazing. However, I will say that Omaha Steaks does offer a few options for the vegetarian and pescatarian members among us. They do have seafood options, as well as the apple tartlets that Andrew mentioned, which are delicious. And also these really great steak fries. They're like super thick and covered in this amazing steak seasoning. So Mm. there are definitely options for us, too. We have an amazing deal for our listeners to get everything that we're talk, talking about in one box. 
Omaha Steaks wants to make you a believer in their food by giving you a huge limited time discount. You do not want to pass this up. You're basically getting free food. For only $49.99, you can receive an Omaha Steaks Father's Day package, which includes two tender filet mignons, two beefy top sirloins, four chicken fried steaks, two boneless pork chops, four all-beef Omaha Steak burgers, four gourmet jumbo franks, 12 ounces of all-beef meatballs, one pound of those steakhouse fries largest mentioned, also four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha Steak seasoning packet, and get four more grill-ready Omaha Steaks burgers free with purchase. You're getting so much here for such a great price. Again, get this limited type package for only $49.99 when you go to omahasteaks.com, type M-I-L-L in the search bar, and add Father's Day package to your cart. Whether you're looking for yourself or your dad, this is the perfect purchase. Don't wait. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type M-I-L-L in the search bar, grab your loved ones, and fire up that grill. I really liked your 12 days of meatness. 12 jumbo hot dogs. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, a lot of people listening live right now. Thanks to everybody who's joining us. And I just wanted to mention that Matt responded when we were talking about BioClarity. He says, BioClarity is life-changing three weeks in, and it's the best skin I've had since pre-puberty. Holy shit, that's a good review. Yeah, Glad you're liking it, Matt. All right. Well, we have a bit of a follow-up news story here. Um, You'll remember last week we talked about the 1,475 missing immigrant children um, that the Department of Health and Human Services doesn't really know what happened to them. Um, And the reason that we're so concerned about this is in part because these are children that were placed in our foster system and now we can't place them. Um, But also due to... um, Uh, the Trump administration's new 100% prosecution policy of people arriving at the border undocumented, people arriving at the southern border are having their children taken from them while they await adjudication. So Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon attempted to visit one of the detention centers where immigrant children are being held after being separated from their parents. The center is in Brownsville, Texas, and is run by a nonprofit called Casa Padre. Merkley was denied entrance to the facility after he claimed that members of his staff had set up a tour last week. There is video of all of this, and it's pretty disturbing. The doors and entrances are completely blacked out, so it is impossible to see what is happening on the inside. Additionally, the police were called towards the end of Merkley's interaction with supervisors and other um, workers at the facility. Did anybody have a chance to catch this video or follow this story at all? I did. The video was disturbing and I can't help but wonder, are these kids getting outside? I mean, if they're being kept under lock and key, it seems, are these kids really okay? (laughs) That's my question. Um, is if the children are being properly cared for while the secrecy, um, if, a member of Congress cannot see a center where the U.S. government is placing children, then who can see it? Um, It's incredibly disturbing. The center is operated by Southwest Key, 
which is a larger nonprofit organization. They operate several centers for unaccompanied immigrant children. And according to their website, healthcare, education, and emergency services are all provided. Um, however, currently, if you look at their website, they state that all of these centers are for unaccompanied immigrant children. But there is reason to believe that hundreds of children that arrived at our southern border with their parents and were separated are in this facility or others like it. Uh, and this just gives me some serious, like, Germany, 1930s goosebumps. Like, yeah, it, it's it just makes your jaw drop. Watching yeah. this video, I mean, you have him walking up and he's very, I mean, Merkley was very um, polite and he wasn't demanding or insistent, although perhaps he may have, he, he should have been. Um, but they would not let him in this place. And it's an old Walmart. It's it's an old Walmart that's been emptied out and turned into a detention center. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, it is really disturbing. There have been rumors of children in cages. Um, thus far, that's not been corroborated about this particular center. But a few weeks ago, an article came out that showed pictures of children in a center like this, and they were indeed in cages. Um, one thing that I do want to note is that that article was actually being recirculated from 2014 when President Obama was still in office. So a really important thing to note is that these centers didn't just start under Trump. We have had mm. them since Obama was president, which also disturbs me. Um, I will say Obama did fight very hard to prevent families from being separated. And the intention was to only house our unaccompanied children in these places. However, that is still incredibly unfucking ideal so obama wasn't the great immigration president either that i think some... i think it worries go ahead i think it worries me more that like because i didn't see this video and like the first time i heard about it was now mm -hmm. and like the article that resurfaced like i knew that it was a few years old but like i didn't see it a few years ago and so i feel like that's like the most terrifying part of this story is that this has been happening for years mm -hmm. and we didn't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What scares me about it is that it was horrible then what was happening and it's getting even worse now. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it's sort of, I guess, comparable to drones. Remember when we talked about drones when Obama was still in office and there was this big debate about whether or not we trusted Obama with drones and the point that got brought up again and again was like, okay, you may trust Obama with this, but are you going to trust his predecessor or excuse me, his successor? Um, and of course, the answer to that is no. So there's a great amount of bias that goes into this conversation. Um, I think a lot of people do not want to address the fact that Obama's immigration policies were up until the point in history in which he was president, some of the strictest. Um, he deported the most people. And these detention centers were 
not necessarily started, but they were made more robust under his administration. So it paved the way for somebody as crazy as Trump and Jeff Sessions to come in and make it even worse. Yeah. And this is like, this is something that we as Americans must find reprehensible. You cannot turn your back on this. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, no matter your views on immigration, these are children. They are minors. They need to be cared for. And if we have decided that we are going to house those children on our soil, we need to be providing them with all of the resources that any child needs. Yeah, absolutely. I'm disgusted with my country. Hmm. And that's all I'll say about that. Well, hopefully we'll get answers about this center and others like it soon to, so we know what's going on in there. Mm, not if the administration has anything to say about it. Well, on that bright note... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being real with you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you are. Please do. I um, want to wrap the show up today with some recommendations. I have a tech recommendation for everybody. Many of us millennials are cable cutters and... I have a good solution for everybody. Um, I've been using DirecTV now for about a year. This is a service from DirecTV slash AT&T. Um, it's an app you can put on your Apple TV, your Roku, and you can stream tons of TV for as little as $35 a month. You can get 60 channels for live channels for $35 a month, including things like CNN, HDTV, ESPN, MSNBC, Fox News, etc. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up now is they just released a new app and it has a cloud DVR for no extra cost and it has a brand new programming guide so you can scroll through everything that's streaming live. You can also easily find stuff on demand. I think DirecTV Now is the best um, live streaming TV option out there. Better than the one by Sony, the, which is The View. Um, better than Sling. I just think DirecTV is the total package. It's got the most channels. It's got the best app. Um, if you're an AT&T customer, you can stream all this stuff over your regular, regular data plan for no extra cost. It doesn't count towards your data limits. So if, you, if you're trying to cut the cable, get rid of that dumb cable box that you have sitting underneath your TV, check out DirecTV now. I think you're really going to like it. Sarah, what do you recommend our listeners check out? Um, so there's a TV show that just started like in September on Freeform that I am very evangelical about. It's called The Bold Type. Um, and it's a show that um, is three uh, women that work at a uh, kind of female-centered magazine. Um, but it is super feminist and intersectional and queer and amazing and about female friendship and just like uh, god I love it so much and it starts next week the second season it's been renewed already uh it's gonna have three seasons for sure um but if you have Hulu they are airing the premiere episode which is gonna be two hours long tomorrow on the fifth so um the first season is 10 episodes so it's really easy to binge but I cannot recommend the bold type more (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Thanks for recommending yeah, that. I'll have yeah, to I've check heard that really out. good things about it. It's really good. I love this show. Yeah. And, oh, uh, it's so good. I've seen um, the first episode back. Thank you, Screening Gods. And it's really good. 
it's really good, especially considering that they just switched up showrunners. It doesn't feel like that if you've been following that news. It's amazing. I'm so excited for it to come back. Uh, I'm so glad that you've seen it, Pam. (laughs) It's really good. This is like the show that I hyped probably the most last year because I was so shocked that it ended up being so good. Um, I think they based it off of like the real, some real life women that worked at Cosmo and like kind of came up that way. And it could have been so bad, but it's so self-aware and not in a way that's like shoving ideas down your throat and super current. And it's amazing what they're doing in the writer's room. Um, And for those of you who are true crime fans, like I am, I recommend evil genius on Netflix. It's like a three episode documentary series about a bank heist gone wrong and it's one of these things that I can't even actually articulate very well you should just sit down and watch (laughs) it um because it's so bizarre like you'll be sitting there watching it and being like what the fuck is actually going on right now um it's really in depth um you hear some fucked up things about the way law enforcement um handled this case so it'll make you mad but you'll also be very confused and curious and probably want to look the case up a bit more so check it out and i and i know that on my favorite murder they did an episode about this like bank heist gone wrong and so you can listen to that podcast episode too and hear some other people's opinion on it yes this is our first episode of the month that means that people at the friends with benefits level over at Patreon, we'll have access to this week's Hashing It Out and After Dark. Today in After Dark, we're going to talk more with Sarah about PhDs. Like Laura said earlier in the show, we want to hear about pursuing a PhD, what that process was like. Also, Sarah has, um, she's protesting the new Fantastic Beast movie, but not for the reason that most people are. So I want to talk to you about that, Sarah, as well, because uh, you have some, you have a very interesting perspective. That's good. I'll talk about it. <laughs> and th- and thanks for joining us today. You were seriously awesome. We love you. We've always loved you. Mm-hmm. And you Aww, are thank you. Now to date, you are the most qualified person that has sat on this panel ever. <laughs> high bar. High bar. <laughs> <laughs> thanks everybody for listening today. If you have any feedback about anything we've discussed today, please email it in to millennialshow at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us, twitter.com slash millennial show. Those are the two best ways to get in touch with us. Um, you can also contact us contact us via our feedback form on the website, millennialshow.com. And we would love your support over at patreon.com slash millennial. We have some fun stuff coming up, um, including more guests. As we spoke about a week or two ago, we're going to bring on more guests like Sarah to get different perspectives on this complicated world. To uh, close us out today, I'm going to say Happy Pride once again with one of my favorite songs of all time by, no, not Bruce Springsteen, Electric Six. It's called Gay Bar. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. I'm Pamela. And I'm Sarah. Bye. Happy Pride. Take you to a gay bar, gay bar, gay bar. Let's start a war.
Oh, man, that was our song of the summer one year. <laughs> yeah. It is almost certainly played on Millennial before or Smart Oh, House. probably. Multiple times. I think it's been Millennial because I think it's the only time I've ever heard the song is on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> also, my alarm clock when I wake up in the morning. Are you serious? All right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Happy Pride. <laughs> Good morning, Andrew. Now playing your favorite song. Yeah! <laughs> I want to take her to a gay bar. 